0: you are listening to a wavel room podcast you can find us on itunes spotify or wherever you go for your podcasts but if that's not enough for you head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles you can follow us on social media where you can come and join us at one of our live events
1: In this podcast, The Wavel Room interviews Air Vice Marshal Ian Gale. Air Vice Marshal Gale joined the RAF in 1990 and flew the Tornado in a variety of frontline and operational test roles. He commanded 31 squadron at RAF Marham and then later commanded RAF Lossimer. As the senior responsible owner for intelligence, surveillance, targeting and reconnaissance, he brought the Pieta Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft into RAF service and was responsible for the Protector Uncrewed Aerial System and the E7 Wedgetail. He was appointed Assistant Chief of the Air Staff in April 2019. This interview was recorded in June 2020.
0: Air Vice-Marshal Gale, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed by the Wavell Room and for joining us here. You've commanded at a variety of levels and in a variety of contexts both commanding service personnel and civilians, in a career spanning um, over 30 years. What's the most important thing that you've learnt about leadership?
1: Thanks, Andy. Inevitably, there's, uh, there's going to be a few answers to that. But if I, if, I, if I start with a headline, I would say that what I've learnt most about leadership is you can't do it all yourself. So maybe we all start out in life wanting to be the hero, wanting to lead everything ourselves and be at the front of everything. And that can work up to a point, but as life goes on and as the span of your leadership increases, the quicker you can transition to understanding that making an environment where other people can flourish and their leadership can flourish is, is in my view, the most important thing because that requires you to change your entire approach. But if I may, I'll I'll add to that in in a few different ways. And I'll say the first thing is that your own leadership evolves over time it's probably not surprising that as a leader in my 20s, I think I am probably a very different uh, type of leader to how I am now. And I think you can drive that pace. You really can direct how that goes. You can drive that pace by constantly being learning, being inquisitive, looking at others, working out what works for you, what doesn't work for you, doing some research and just reflecting on how you can improve yourself. And being a constant self-improver, it is a good way to work out, I think, what works for you. I think you've also got to tailor it. Leadership in one circumstance uh, would be very, very different from in another. And I think recognizing that your leadership styles and the situations that you find yourself in call for different types of leadership, again, is a very deliberate act rather than, trying to apply your own leadership style to everything. Sometimes you've got to be in a slightly less comfortable place and and perhaps remain true to yourself. It's taken me many years to accept my own weaknesses. This idea of the incomplete leader, well that's definitely me and and I think the quicker that we can get to the place where we recognise where we're strong and where we're weak and then build a team around us to help fill the weaknesses then the better we all are for it and, and remaining true to yourself as well I, I think i find myself in a position now that, that i never could have dreamed as uh as an air cadet when i joined the air force but i'd like to think i'm still me you still get absolutely the ian gale that is true you don't get a false external version of me and that's really important to me. I think when you start to separate and become a, a model that you think other people want you to be, you're on a dangerous path. And, and to that end, you know, I, I hope I stay genuine to that. But that does mean that you get me faults and all. I, I think that's a good thing. I, I get around that by employing people who are brighter than me. <laughs> that's, that's pretty easy if you're me, but it, it delights me when I can help people who are cleverer than me move on quicker than I did.
0: So the, the Ian Gale, which is true, is now the assistant chief of the air staff. You've been in that role for just over a year. Can you explain for our listeners what that means and what's top of your intra
1: right now? Yeah, of course. It's it, it's a funny post, the one of assistant chief, and I'm the assistant chief strategy, but it encompasses a bit more than that. So I suppose I'm the chief of staff for for the chief of the Royal Air Force. Um, if this was a modern day A team, it's altogether less glamorous, but the strap line would be if uh, nobody else wants to do it, uh, if it's not clear how it's solved, and if it's late, uh, give it to ACAS. So that that's uh, one part of the job. A, a really big part of what I do is strategy. So in my department, my strategy team authors the Royal Air Force strategy and authors, I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute—are. Um, underpinning work for things like the review. But, you know, if we just backpedal on that, the strategy, it sounds very dull and dry and all the rest of it. You know, the are all air forces out there right now. And if I just pick a few areas of, of how it's keeping you safe right now, we have QRA fighters on standby that could be airborne at a moment's notice and are frequently scrambled to incursions into our airspace that threaten us, be those by hostile states or potentially hostile states, by rogue airliners or whatever it might be. Linked to that is a network of radars that are keeping our airspace clear and allowing QRA to get to those things quickly. Our, our newly introduced maritime patrol aircraft are routinely patrolling the North Atlantic, keeping our deterrent safe uh, and keeping us safe in conjunction with the Royal Navy from surface and subsurface threats. And at Dales and other places, we're monitoring space and we're very, very active in space every single day of the week. None of that happens to keep us all sleeping soundly in our beds at night in the UK and abroad, without a strategy that brings together our people, our stuff and our money. So it's actually a lot more operational than it might sound because it has a daily impact on what we do. So that's a large part of the job. My role also encompasses the, if you like, the custodian of the reputation of the Royal Air Force, although really all of us are that. So under me comes the media and comms uh, organisation and uh, all that that entails. So when we do press releases, campaigns, when we react to things that have happened, good or bad, that falls to me as well. I have the history and ceremonial areas of the Royal Air Force. I also am involved in the release to service and the initial issue of release to service to uh, new capabilities, be those platforms like the P8 or, or new air traffic systems like Marshall, which is modernising all of the military air traffic systems that the UK possesses. Uh, a really big important part of my job is the international role. So I'm the first point of contact for a number of our relationships with other air forces. Uh, I'm part of the Air Attaché Network in London. And I I'm routinely in conversation with my counterparts in other air forces. Why does that matter? Well, of course, there are allies and partners. And allies and partners is a massively important part of who we are as global Britain. But also in terms of prosperity for the United Kingdom, we are joined up with nations. I mean, we have a joint squadron with Qatar, for example, around the Typhoon aircraft that is bringing us security. It's bringing us influence and it's bringing us prosperity and jobs into the UK. So that's a real sort of a cross-government spanning role of the job as well. I'll finish with two. I'm the conceptual champion to the Royal Air Force through the defence studies role. And what that means is I make the brain of the Royal Air Force convulse and come out with new ideas and imagine the future. Conceptual thinking can quite often be thought of as dull and remote, but actually it is the imagineering. It is the, the really bright people thinking of the new concepts for the Air Force. And finally, in the roles, I and the others in the senior leadership team are discharging Astra, which is our programme for the future of the Air Force. And i would come back to that later on. Top of the intray, COVID and keeping operating through COVID and being stronger and better as we transition through the phases of COVID into whatever the permanent new normal is. The integrated review, which is obviously live at the moment, making sure that we do the best for the Air Force, the best for defence and the best for the nation. And I talked about renewal, prosperity, exports, uh, things like making sure that we employ people across the whole United Kingdom, which we do, and and bring the strengths of our union together. And then finally, Astra uh, would be in in my top three as well, because Astra is going to change everything for us.
0: So a big part of your job is strategy, and you also talked about imagining the future. So how do you see the future of air and space power evolving, and what does that mean for the RAF?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm glad you said uh, air and space power, because there we go, that's that's the nub of it. What's new? Way back when, uh, people were thinking about a new domain, and it was called AIR and people weren't sure if it would catch on and whether it would be part of somebody else and whether there'd be anything in it. And I suppose we've seen ourselves do that with both space and cyber. And space and cyber have become very very important to how we how we do our work i mean as an air force and and certainly the navy as well we're so dependent on space that we must protect it if we lose space we're in big trouble immediately and of course like every other citizen in the world we're cyber dependent as well so that's the first thing we we are increasing our involvement our skills and our programs uh, particularly in space and i expect there to be some some big developments in in that area i mean for the moment we have about 450 people who would who would identify as uh, space in their job title i expect that will increase quite a lot skills are going to change as well when i joined the air force a second language was french or german increasingly it's python 5 or some other computer language or or a way of being comfortable in big data analysis and I think we're probably going to move quickly to a place where everyone's multi-skilled and you've got your primary superpower, but your secondary superpower is there as well. The importance of coding, of data networks, and using that data to really get to intelligence and insight and foresight is going to disproportionately increase. That of course, has got a few things on the horizon. We've got the singularity, and whatever that means to us when computers exponentially increase their power, and quantum computing, which we have been on the cusp of for a while, but we really do seem about to be making big breakthroughs very soon. And then finally, being a more versatile and better employer. So the, the demands of ever newer generations of people, coupled with the changing demands of the people that we've got, mean that we just have to work harder. I've always said that if you if you join the air force, you'll you'll never get rich. Uh, it's it's not that kind of job, but you'll have the kinds of adventures and the ability to change the world that you just can't get in other jobs. Uh, and we need to make sure that that stays. This idea of pride and service remains, and how we appeal to people remains as well. So. We're already pretty socially mobile, about 40% of our officer cadre comes from the ranks, about 90% of our non-commissioned people are on an apprenticeship of one kind or another, but we need to do more. So flexible service, and all of this has been accelerated by COVID. Flexible service, remote service, zigzag careers, where we absolutely encourage people to do some time in the military, go out into industry, uh, spread those skills and knowledge, get some more, come back into the military probably at a higher rank all of these things are changing very very rapidly and and long overdue in my view because these are things that allow us to make the most of the most diverse talents we can possibly get our hands on Uh, and that's for regular service people various forms of reservists and of course all of our civil servants as well you know this this is for everybody that the royal air force is all of those people
0: The next uh, group of questions are from our listeners on Twitter. You've been in the job for 30 years. What's the one thing uh, which at the time you couldn't influence, you regret happening to the service?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You you probably won't expect this, but the thing that I wish hadn't happened, and I fully understand the reasons for it, but the the Royal Air Force used to provide search and rescue services across the UK, and the sight of a yellow helicopter has been the saviour of many people. The reason they existed was for for downed military aircrew, but the vast majority of their work was picking up people who got into trouble on the mountains, in the seas, typically. And having commanded Lossiemouth for a while and seen firsthand the work that those people did, I thought it was genuinely heroic on a daily basis. I thought it was so valuable to the people of the UK uh, and a great shame that we lost it. I mean, that's not to say the Coast Guard don't do a great job, I just wish that we had that within the Royal Air Force.
0: The second question concerns Astra. Um, Astra is very much your responsibility as, as ACAS. And so this listener asks, how do we avoid it becoming a, a good ideas club? They, they say that they've had 25 years of countless REF change initiatives, failing to deliver the benefits and then just flipping to the next scheme. So how can we make sure that Astra is the one that doesn't do that?
1: Yeah, and I hear that a lot. And and it's not unreasonable for people to be cynical. And of course, you you get this oft-quoted 80%, 85% of change initiatives fail. But but they fail based on the criteria they were set at the start. And when you look back at them, they they had great successes. They just didn't achieve everything, so they counted as a failure. And the constant changes, well, the thing is, the world is changing. And those of us who don't evolve are going to get left behind. So I think... I think we've got to stop looking at change as the enemy and as a hostile thing and embrace it as us getting ahead. I mean this isn't all occurring in isolation, you know there's an enemy out there who gets a vote in this and they are changing, so we need to evolve quicker and be smarter but but I get it there is cynicism so okay, addressing that Astra's different because you've got a you've got a top team in the air force that is absolutely committed to this. A chief who's gone to far as far as to say. Um, I'm so committed here that for the first time in 100 years, I'm going to say the words, my replacement doesn't need to be a pilot, doesn't even need to be aircrew. Now, that's been an unwritten rule for 100 years, and and that's gone. And the enabling networks to make non-pilots or aircrew be the chief have have been put in place. But that's not going to appeal to everybody because not everybody's interested in that. We've created a a network, a massive network. We, we've got about 600 people across the Air Force at the moment who are bringing Astra out to the stations at every rank level in every profession that we've got. We've created Kickstarter funding and pilot projects to put our money where our mouth is. So if you've got one of these good ideas, because by the way, Astra needs bright ideas. Uh, that's part of it. There's a there's a there's a future focus part, which is how we fight and win in the future, focused out at about 2035, 2040. And there's another part that says, why is today better than yesterday? And how will tomorrow be better than that? And for that, we do need bright ideas. And some of them don't cost much. They're about the way we act, the way we empower people, the way we communicate, the way we break through layers of cynicism and, and layers of hostility. So we've created that Kickstarter funding. I have a various number of Microsoft Teams where actually Any of those 600 ambassadors can get straight to me, uh, and we've already committed about half of our initial Kickstarter funding. So the investment is now, and and I'll stop with this because I'll go on for too long otherwise. You know, Astra is a philosophy. It's not a programme, and it's also a question. So my question when you say, what are you going to do for me, is, you know what, we're doing it right now. What are you doing? What are you doing to change your Air Force to make it better for you, for those around you and those you lead. And, and I think that's really important. This isn't passive. It requires everybody to be active and and suspend the cynicism and, and ask the question afresh. How am I gonna improve the organization and what help do I need? Mobilize the command chain.
0: Uh, you tweeted recently, you have taken part in a webinar chat with Matthew Seed and I think that, that prompts the next question which is, are you confident that the RAF senior leadership team will fully embrace cognitive diversity and do you think that our leaders are comfortable being uncomfortable
1: yeah it's really interesting well so Matthew his his book about rebel ideas and his webinar were, were excellent but but it's interesting that question because it, it's placed in the future the senior leadership team is Pretty cognitively diverse. I mean, everybody thinks it's a room full of white male pilots. Well, it's not. We've got a, a, a pretty diverse range of of people in that room. We also have our non-executive directors, who we specifically bring in to have skills that we don't have or perspectives that we don't have. But I get it. We 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 still need to push, and we do need to make ourselves uncomfortable because that that way we're ingesting. Perhaps the most challenging opinions that that have a voice of one. So the short answer is is yes. We're, we're pushing that very hard, because the simple fact is, if we if we're not diverse, and 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 I, I mean that in every sense of the word, then we'll have one brain acting many times. When we are diverse, we bring many brains, many perspectives um, that can only be gained through life experiences and and those sorts of things to bear in a problem and that brings us better solutions and we're stronger for it so definitely are our leaders comfortable being uncomfortable I, I, i've got to tell you Andy, you can't be in the top team of an organization like the royal air force and not exist in an uncomfortable position every single day so if, if you don't like that definitely don't apply <laughs> for normal um, daily activity
0: do you, do you think we still have too many levels of hierarchy in the ref and with greater delegation of budgets make the RAF more efficient and responsive?
1: Now, you know what? That's the kind of question I would love to see in my inbox because those are both direct hits. So I do think we have too many levels of hierarchy and we are taking steps to examine that right now to see what we can reduce. We've already done a lot of it. We reduced our headquarters. I mean, we have one headquarters. Um, You can't get much... um, much fewer than that without having nothing. We've hit our star count fairly hard. So we're trying to take numbers of people out, but we also need to take some layers out as well. So yes, uh, and the next thing is, I mean, it's a great second part, very much so. And I was just talking this week with our Director of Resources about the progress of our plan to decentralize our budget as far as possible. Primarily, the, the real, The real power here lives at our station command level. And what we've got to do is we've got to line up the money, the policy awareness and the power to be able to make smarter investment decisions faster to improve efficiency and the lot of people on stations. So we're well on the way to that. I mean, we're talking in weeks and months, not years. So a great question and on it both.
0: When I asked you what's top of your intro at the moment, but it's it's COVID, this interview is being recorded in June 2020, where we're, we're all currently locked down and we've been locked down for, for three months. Pandemics were a tier one threat in the UK national security strategy. Do you think that we overly focus on military security?
1: Yeah, and I, I can see why, at a time like this, that, that question raises its head. But I suppose there's two parts to this. If, if we'd just been invaded, I can't help thinking that the question wouldn't be posed to an NHS leader saying, "Do you think you focused a little bit too much on health there and not enough on defending the homeland?" So, whilst COVID is enormous, it, an absolutely enormous challenge, our business in the military—and this is all of the services—is to it, is to do the the basic security that keeps our way of life going. And that you know, I'm talking about the sea and the air lines of communication. I'm talking about defending us from submarines that probe our shores bring themselves within missile range of our of our cities regularly fly fighters into our into and towards our airspace in order to disrupt our our ways of life so we've got to do that that is the bottom line and then we've got to push back terrorism we've got to make sure that we defend our way of life and by that i mean the the, the rules based order if you like and make sure that There isn't a creeping incursion that we suddenly find ourselves faced by a massive context change. But if I can just come into COVID, again, all three services, I'll talk for the Air Force, but all three services have made a massive response to COVID. So so we might be positioned, if you like, to fight conflicts, but but all three services are operating every day of the week in support of of United Kingdom outputs. So for COVID, we all mobilised. And you found us all driving trucks of oxygen, helping to do uh, planning across government, setting up hospitals, setting up helicopter forward operating bases to helicopter uh, patients from remote locations, uh, and for us doing international trips to to bring protective equipment into the UK and putting nurses and doctors right into the front line in hospitals as well. Uh, And again, all three services were doing this. So uh, I think the military... It is unique in that we're so broad, we can be used in so many different ways. But we have to remember that ultimately we're the only one that can be used to physically fight to defend us. So we, we can't lose sight of that.
0: Uh, the next question from from one of our uh, waiver Room listeners takes us into a field that I know that you're passionate about, and that's space power. So the question is, the US budget for, for Space Force in 2021 is 15 billion dollars. With space increasingly a contested domain, how is the UK evolving its strategies and allied partner to defend its space assets and drive integration of air, sea and land assets through space? And what role will industry play in that?
1: It's a very broad question. So let's take the US investment. Let's be careful of that. The US is the is the biggest investor. So, so we don't probably need to compare ourselves directly to the US. We're looking at playing our part. We're looking at Providing security in a contested warfighting domain, and we're looking at bringing UK niche advantage to bear. So uh, we're not at day zero either. We, we've been in space for a great deal of time. We've had people involved in in other space programs and our own for a great deal of time, particularly with the US, but a number of other nations as well. And we're a, a core contributor to uh, Olympic Defender. So we're already very active in space right now. Where we're going, though, we've, we've got Carbonite 2, which is one of our programmes which is in orbit at the moment, and we're looking at other programmes to launch more satellites that work together with more capabilities. The Space Directorate has stood up under Air Vice Marshal Half Smith, and in due course I'm quite sure that a space command will be established at some point to drive that ever closer to the front line. So those are the sorts of things that are going on now. We've been active with the Dales, as I mentioned, and the UK Space Operations Centre. That's already doing that integration work. You know, space is inherently an integrative place. You know, it can't function if it isn't. So we're very much conscious of our role to drive that, to make sure that we don't allow any situations to develop where, for some reason, space is not integrative and in the future, where does industry play? Well, the, the UK is in a great place here. I mean, I can tell you that at RAF Leeming, there's a company called Stratabooster who are working with the RAF Innovation uh, or the Experimentation Hub, uh, and they're looking at launching a uh, PICO satellite from a small rocket that goes into space on a balloon. This is real innovative stuff. Of course, down in Cornwall, Virgin Orbit uh, are looking at basing their horizontal launch, and we have a test pilot in that programme. Whilst up in the north of Scotland, that will be where vertical launch from the UK comes. So we're in a place where we're accelerating very quickly. More and more people are becoming space qualified, which does take a little bit of time. And we've got programmes that are advancing us in, in ways that are at the forefront of what uh, other nations are doing in space, such that we can find ways to defend our space assets and launch into space very, very quickly. So I'm a bit constrained by obviously what I can say on this podcast, but I I get hugely excited when talking about space because so many things are happening simultaneously. And the UK has a real influence position here with companies like Airbus, you know, we already have Skynet, and it's it's, it's a world-leading capability. Uh, Surrey Small Satellites, who have been leading world capability in that particular market for a very long time. And the UK as a launch location accesses orbits that you don't get from existing launch locations. So that's, that's going to give us another advantage of geography, which the UK already has.
0: Part of your role as ACAS is that you are the... Uh, the custodian of the RAF's relationships with other air forces. Can we expect an increase in the number um, and/or scope of RAF bilateral and trilateral exercises involving non-NATO partners, such as as Guardian North with the Japanese, or Invincible Shield with the South Koreans, or with the Indra Danush series with um, with India?
1: Yeah, I think let's not forget that the the core partnership that we have is with NATO and being a good NATO partner and and demonstrating leadership into NATO is very, very important. But the questions about non-NATO partners, and I will certainly say that our appetite is increasing because we have very important relationships with all of those countries and more, particularly with Australia. And it can, of course, be quite hard to tee up an exercise with Australia because it one of us has got a long way to travel, but you know, if we look at parts of the world, the, the Indo-Pacific is a really important place to us. If you look at the, you know, the seven of the tens most populous countries are out there, most biggest armies are there. You know, it's it's an incredibly important place, and it's a fault line at the moment where friction and conflict could happen. So. That part of the world is very important to us and to the other services. And a truly global Britain is going to have persistent forward presence in places like that. So we want to do more of these exercises because it blurs the boundaries. We we put people in each other's air forces, in our case, and we understand more and we gain better interoperability. And therefore, our network of alliances and partners, which is something that our potential adversaries don't have, to the extent that we do they have clients so our network of alliances and partners grows greater and when you look at some of these nations as well the industrial partnerships we've got to form on programs like Tempest which are going to bring top-end capability and investment and jobs to Britain rely on some of these other nations being partnered with us I mean um, Norway and Sweden I know we're mainly talking non-NATO but they're very important partners to us in mpa and potentially looking forward into tempest as well so the appetite going up i think it would be it would be wrong to say yes we're definitely going to do this this side of a review because covid is having an impact on us which is not yet fully understood so how will we how will we be able to bring that to bear if it's not exercises we'll find other ways but our our partnerships will be deepening that that's absolutely certain
0: do you see the challenge of China as a unifier or a divider between us and our NATO allies in terms of their power
1: so china is is a real conundrum China is a a remarkable opportunity for prosperity and for technological progress, but we are not aligned with China in a number of ways. human rights, our view of the world, and it it represents a military threat, not least because of what's going on. Uh, in their part of the world at the moment, and the way that we will continue to reinforce the rules-based order, and and amongst that would be things like freedom of navigation. So it's it, it's a really challenging area that I think we it, it's not as simple as friend or foe, uh, and I think you'll you'll see that, for example, the issue of 5G has been quite a divisive one between NATO allies, uh, and then there might be some other. Clearer things that that will unite the whole team uh, in a certain way. So if China were to act clumsily, that would unite NATO very very quickly. So I think China is the real conundrum of our time, and we we just need to to be very careful and exercise that very British diplomacy in dealing with China as both an opportunity and a threat.
0: And the next question concerns your role as the the custodian of the the RAF's reputation. So how will the REF make coherent use of social media and establish best practice amongst all units?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. And again, it, it sort of implies that we're not doing that. Uh, and for what it's worth, my opinion is we could be quite a lot better. Uh, we, we've got a, a new head of our media and Commons organisation who has a deep professional background in, in the topic. Uh, and we're just reviewing right now, this week in fact, a review of all of our official and unofficial social media accounts. I will say it looks like we've got far too many. But on the other hand, uh, being a bit of a liberalist, I don't want to have control of them all. I want to be able to give uh, intent and have coherent messaging, but I want people to be able to go and take that to the world in their own way and express their own opinions. So I think what that means is we've, got, we've probably got to trim down. Uh, we probably don't need quite as many Twitter accounts as we've got. We've got to get slightly better, I think, at, at pushing out a core message, but shy of, of the dreaded lines to take that explains where we're going with things, but then be prepared for people to have their own opinions. We do have a network of media comms officers. And again, it's the same with all the services. And they're really important to us because they are both media professionals although that's not why they join the service often they're temporary media professionals and they're on site with the thing that excites people about the royal air force so we've got to give them enough latitude to go on and to make their mistakes and not punish them when they do it because they're trying their best
0: the final question and this concerns uh, astra which we we touched on earlier so for your final question what is your 60 second elevator pitch for the next gen ref
1: wow All right. Well, as the elevator starts going up, I'll say that the world is changing. It's changing fast. The fourth industrial revolution, the relatively new domains of cyber and space, the geopolitics of the world and people's expectations, both of those which have been accelerated by COVID. So we need to evolve or die. And I mean that quite literally, because we need to fight and win in the battle space. So the first 100 years was probably poor ar- ardua. Um, the growing pains were difficult, and the technological leaps were also hard. The second 100 is Ad Astra, uh, which is where it comes from. So we are, we are literally and figuratively going to the stars. We've got a bold plan. It's as much a question and a challenge as it is direction. We're looking long-term, as we must do to plan for the future, but we're also setting today's steps, making each day better than the last. We are focused on people, equipment, training, infrastructure and support where we've got some real today problems and we're setting up concepts to make it all hang together and aim out towards the future. It's a massive empowerment and people revolution and if you're in the Air Force and you're listening to this, I want you to be part of it.
0: Air Vice-Marshal, thank you for joining us in the Weaver Room. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you.